Good morning and welcome. And we have a special group we want to welcome this morning. We have our Route 456 kids joining us in worship today. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Give it a hand. So it is really important. And if you don't know this, if you're like, why? Or your first time here and you're like, wait, they have kids in worship? Yes. There is tons of research that says one of the best things we can do for a kid's faith development is give them a place where they can watch and be a part of adults worshiping. And so we want to make this something where we're testing it out. We'll see how it goes. The jokes are pretty lame, but if you'll still laugh, it makes me feel good. So if you guys could do that, it'd be awesome. So okay. <laughs> you guys are more awake this service. So, all right, many of you know, I grew up in West Virginia and I have some great memories of my childhood and teenage years growing up in West Virginia, but when you grow up in West Virginia, learning to drive is a little bit different than learning to drive in Illinois, where you get on 116 or 74, and you just go straight. And then you go straight some more, and you pass cornfields and soybean fields, and the scenery never changes, and you just go straight. When you grow up driving in West Virginia, you have to get used to lots of different road signs that come. And this is a pretty standard one that's on just about every West Virginia road. And so you know that when you see this sign, for the next three to five miles, there's no point in passing on a two-lane road because you're not going to be able to see more than 100 yards in front of you. I remember when I first came here and first moved to the Midwest and got on a two-lane road and I was like, wait, I can just pull out and set my cruise in the lane going the opposite direction and pass all these cars and not have to get back over because I can see for miles and miles. Teenagers, do not take driving tips from me. Please listen to your parents. But if, if you don't get the windy, curvy roads just going on, if there's a sharper bend coming up, you'll get a road sign like this, which you better slow down because you're about to make a right turn in the lane. So it's going to be 90 degrees almost. And when it's coming really sharp or it's going to last a long time, they stack these road signs one on top of each other. This means slow down or you will fly off the side of the mountain. That is what is going to happen as you drive on to that one. And then there's this one just to terrify young drivers. If you are an anxious young driver at all, it will be years before you ever pass a semi and a bend because nobody wants to be on the wrong side of that happening. And then there's one other road sign. Now here, you think it means U-turn or no U-turn, but this is actually a hairpin turn. So if you come up to this road sign, you are going to go around a bend and be going the exact opposite direction you were going prior to making this. My grandpa had a special word for that, but we're not gonna talk about that this morning. So you have to learn to navigate all of these different road signs. And when you come up to them, most of them will have a speed limit posted underneath that. So it'll say like 15, 25, 35. And if you take the bins at that speed, it will make it very easy to go around that corner. Nobody gets slammed into the door. No one slides across the back seat and presses against them. However, as a 17-year-old kid who was ultra-competitive without a fully developed frontal lobe, that was not my goal. My goal was to ask my friend, hey, how fast did you take that turn last time? And then see how far above that, that, that suggested speed limit we can get without putting my mom's car in a ditch or off the side of a mountain. It is not a smart game to play. Again, my frontal lobe was not fully developed, but this is what we did. 
I can safely report my mom's car never went off the road and there were no major injuries to my friends except for the bumps and bruises of people literally flying across the back seat and slamming into the car door on the other side. Now you might be wondering, what in the world do road signs have to do with church and why are we talking about them on a Sunday morning? Well, we're in our final week of a series we've called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And over the last month, we have identified and defined hurry sickness. For those of you who maybe are like, I I remember he said it, but I'm not sure what he meant. Hurry sickness is a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participation in more and more events in less and less time. Sound like anybody's life? How much can I get done in how little time? We've learned over the last month that the cure for hurry sickness is to learn to abide or to live with Jesus. We've learned that living or abiding with Jesus means to build moments of silence or solitude into our everyday lives. It means to take a day each week and to rest and to build, to use that day to strengthen our relationship with Jesus and to do things that we enjoy or that bring us life. And if you were here last week, Dave Jane from Connect Church taught us that it means we need to learn to simplify. That maybe before we buy that thing that we tell ourselves we need, but really we just want, we should stop and ask, is it really a need? How do we do this week? I know, it's been really tempting, right? The emails don't stop coming. Good, there you go. This week we're going to explore the concept of slowing. And you see, to successfully navigate a turn in West Virginia, you have to know where your brake pedal is. And as you approach the turn, you slow down. You slow down as you enter the turn, but you don't stop. The thing I don't want people to think about is this is just a series about like, how do I eliminate stuff so I don't have to do anything anymore? That's not the goal. But when we slow down, we can come out of that turn and accelerate and be actually more prepared and ready to do the things that God has for us to do. But we have to slow down first. The goal of those road signs is to warn drivers so they can be prepared of what's coming. They're warning signs that if we don't slow down, something bad is going to happen and the consequences could be disastrous. If we're going to learn to abide with Jesus in silence and Sabbath and simplicity, we have to learn to slow down. Much like slowing down to go around a bend, the consequences of not slowing down in life can be equally disastrous. Now, I know some of you are like, you hear sermons like this and you're like, oh, that's great, Jason. You and your family slow down. We're just fine with the pace of our life. We don't need to slow or change anything. You do you, we'll do us okay, I think we've known each other long enough to know that my goal is not to guilt you into anything. I just want you to stop and think for a minute about, is this really healthy? Is the pace you're running healthy? And if the answer is yes, then keep doing the things you're doing. But let me ask these questions, maybe as warning signs to us or road signs about how are we doing? Here's the first one. How often do your partner kids or closest friends have to walk on eggshells around you so they don't accidentally set you off? This question can be a warning sign as to how we're actually doing. How healthy are we? Maybe anger isn't your go-to. 
So maybe you have to ask yourself this question. How often does a minor or subtle critique or email send you into a tailspin? When was the last time you slept eight hours in one night? Ate a home-cooked meal. Thursday doesn't count. Some of you didn't cook it anyway. Got the exercise you've been talking about and had a physical to see how your body is actually doing. Last one. How often do you find yourselves binge-watching TV, constantly scrolling through your phone, binge-eating or drinking, or some other escape activity instead of doing something life-giving? See, these questions aren't meant to make us feel guilty. They're not meant to shame us. They're meant to be warning signs that help us see in our lives maybe we need to slow down just a little bit. My fear is that many of us know this, but we're gripping the steering wheel of life and we've got the accelerator mashed to the floor and we're going to hold on for all we can. We're just trying to fight the big one that's coming. Truth is, we're afraid to slow down. We're afraid of what would happen if we actually did. Will we lose significance? Will we miss out on the promotion we've been fighting for so hard What if my kid doesn't make the team or get to do all the things they want to do? I'll ruin their childhood. What if we lose our social status? Slowing down is countercultural and it's going to make us stand out. But I'm afraid if we don't, we're going to miss what's most important. In order to help us see that today, I want to invite you, if you've got your phones or your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. Open up to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 38 today. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of Luke, Jesus has been leading his disciples. He's showing them, he's modeling for them this, this need to pull away, to be silent. He goes away with the Father and prays. He's quiet. Then he pulls them away in just groups of the 13, and he teaches them. And then he teaches to the crowd, he teaches them, one of the the things he teaches them is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we think, Jason, that's not a parable about slowing down, that's a parable about loving your neighbor. The reality of that story is you don't love your neighbor if you don't take long enough to slow down and see them laying in the ditch. And it's out of that parable that he teaches the story we're going, or he says the story that we're going to read today, and it might be one of the most pointed places about slowing down in all of scripture. Luke 10 38 says this, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Now, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture to read the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Small disclaimer, Mom, I know you're watching online, and I love you. This story has a point. I don't know what your family gatherings are like over the holidays. Mine are always a little chaotic, and oh man, do they have stories to tell at the end. So let me introduce you to a few characters of the story at my family 
Thanksgiving. First is my mom. If my mom is hosting, my mom is racing around at 100 miles an hour. She has a million things to get done. She's got a checklist. She's scratching them off. She has the menu in her head, and she is repeating it on repeat all the time in her head and sometimes out loud so that she doesn't forget something that has to be on the table. The next character is my aunt. My aunt is cool, calm, collected. Her main role at these meals is to keep my mom from losing her mind. So she will literally walk behind. She's helping my mom get stuff on the table, and she'll just say, Becky, just breathe. Becky, just breathe. And so that is the goal my aunt plays in this story. So my brother, myself, and my uncle, we are probably outside playing football with the kids. If we've already done that, we're watching football on the TV, and if that's already ended, we're probably somewhere asleep on a couch while the football game still plays, right? So that's where we are in this place. Uh, And then we've got the kids. They're either outside with us. They're having a wrestling match and getting in trouble for being too loud or breaking things, or we're in that one moment of silence where they're playing Legos and enjoying themselves. If you walk into the kitchen at this point, it is 150 degrees. Between the oven, the four gas burners on the stove that are all cooking all the body heat and people running around. It's like 150 degrees in the kitchen. When we sit down to eat, we're actually going to open the window that's right next to the door. And whoever sits there or right next to the table, whoever sits there is going to have that 20 degree cold chill just running right down the back of their neck. And they're freezing. The rest of us are sweating. And it's just great. Corey, Corey has found herself a quiet place on the couch to crochet, hidden in a corner, because she tried to help once, and my grandma told her she was doing it wrong, so she's not going to try again. And then, uh, and then my stepsister, she's, or not my stepsister, my sister-in-law, she's sitting on the other end of the couch, probably reading a book on her Kindle. If you happen to wander into the kitchen prior to dinner being ready, you're going to get scolded and reminded not to ruin your dinner, because it'll be served soon, and there'll be lots to eat, so don't eat so much that you ruin your dinner. And then at some point in this loving family environment, the smoke alarm goes off and we know that dinner is ready because the rolls have been burnt. I can't tell you how often we have not had bread at a Thanksgiving or Christmas meal because they are black like charcoal. And that is the story I think of when I think of Martha. Here's Martha. She is running around making sure the turkey is fully cooked. The potatoes are mashed perfectly and there's no lumps. The sweet potatoes are topped and look beautiful with pralines because she actually loves Jesus and wouldn't serve marshmallows to anyone. (laughs) The stuffing and the rolls are still hot. They're on the table. The gravy is just the right thickness. The cranberry relish has been placed on the table. Martha is sweating and moving nonstop. Meanwhile, there's Mary. Mary's sitting on the couch. She's listening to Jesus tell stories and teach. She's relaxed in her yoga pants. She's got a small plate of the charcuterie board that Martha set out earlier for lunch. And she and Jesus are laughing it up and having a great time. But if you're Martha, you've been in the kitchen and you know what's going on in Martha's mind. What's wrong with Mary? What? She just sits all the time. She never does anything. Would somebody come in here and help? I'm doing this all by myself. And we begin to tell this story in our mind, right? Anybody else? Just me? We tell this story, right? Like, I wish somebody would asked to help. Nobody ever asked to help. And so finally, Martha marries my childhood of West Virginia with my passive-aggressive time in Minnesota. And she walks in with the most passive-aggressive question. She doesn't come in and yell at Mary. She comes in and she's like, Jesus, 
do you think it's right for Mary to sit there while I do all this hard work? Right? She's got the pure, she is laying it on the passive-aggressive really thick. Jesus' answer would have stopped her in her tracks because he says this in verse 41. My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. Church, in all of our busyness, in all of our constant moving, we are worried and upset over details that probably don't matter. How much different would our day-to-day experience and our holiday times be if we knew what Mary knew? If we learned to slow down, to listen, to make space in our lives to allow Jesus to speak? What if we stop trying to juggle all the things we have going on in life and let them drop so we could sit at Jesus' feet? And what if after we'd sat, after we'd slowed down, we decided to only pick up the things that really matter? Thomas Friedman, in his latest book, Thank You for Being Late, described the hustle we all live in every day as this. We're living at one of the greatest inflection points in history. The three largest forces on the planet, technology, globalization, and climate change, are all accelerating at once, and we're overwhelmed by it all. Friedman argues, in such a time, opting to pause and reflect rather than panic or withdrawal is a necessity. He doesn't say, it'd be nice. He says, it's a necessity. I believe Friedman has tapped into something the biblical authors have been trying to teach us for a long time. God's words to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40 say this, O Jacob, how can you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you, not, have you never heard? Have you never understood The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who wait in the Lord will trust, will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary They will walk and not faint. Church, we have the source of ultimate strength at our disposal. We worship a God who desires to come alongside and support us. But he's not a God who's going to force his way in. He's not a God that's going to demand that we stop. He's a God that waits for us to invite him in. The word wait in Hebrew here in this passage is most often translated wait, but another way it can be translated is trust. Maybe the biggest act of trust we can have in God today is to slow down and learn to wait. I believe Mary knew this, and that's why instead of running around, she chose to sit down at Jesus' feet.
Church, God sees our struggles. He sees our trials. He knows how exhausted we are. And he's inviting us to a life that can be lived differently. He wants to renew our strength. He wants to see us run like we haven't run in years. He wants us to learn to depend on him to slow down. He wants us to learn to break as we go into the corner so we can accelerate as we come out. And maybe the most paradoxical truth that we see in Scripture is learning to slow down will enable us to do more. If we learn to slow down, we may actually be able to do more. But slowing down isn't easy. Finding intentional moments of silence and practicing Sabbath are not things we go about casually. John Mark Comer says in his book that we must learn to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. But I think we look at hurry and we'd like to pat it on the head and just be like, oh, it's okay. Just sit there and behave. But it's like my dog at Thanksgiving. You turn your back on it and hurry is going to attack the dining room table and there will be no food left. He says you have to be ruthless in your elimination and your dissection of hurry from our lives. And so as we close up this series, I want to give you a few suggestions that he makes in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, that I think might actually help us. And I want you to know these are simply suggestions. They're not legalistic things for us to follow. This is not for me to point out and to say to you, you need to do this. It is not for you as the spouse in a relationship to look at your spouse and be like, you need to do that. This is for each of us to look into our own lives and say, what do I need to do? So that we can experience life the way God wants us to. Number one, what if we would show up 10 minutes early for meetings? Now, I don't know if Chase is watching online or first service or second service, but if he is, he is laughing at me right now. Because if you know anything about me, I am perpetually two to three minutes late for meetings. My motto is five minutes late is still on time, six minutes and you're late. So you got that five-minute buffer window. But what if we showed up 10 minutes early? And not so we could brag and be like, hey, look, I was the first one here but so we could, say, we could prepare our hearts, we could think through the conversations we need to have in that meeting, we could actually be ready to walk into the meeting and focused on what the meeting is about. As, to, as opposed to running in ragged, having not thought through anything. Maybe you need to turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. I mean, no notifications. What if we took email off our phone? What if you took social media off your phone so you had to actually log into a computer to take a look at it? What if you deleted news apps? Let's be honest, reading the news isn't making anybody happier right now. I don't care what side of the argument you're on, nobody's happy. What if we just decluttered our phones so that we deleted all those apps we don't use? I can tell you, it's been at least two years, if not a little bit longer, since I took notifications off my phone. I get text messages and it rings. Other than that, there are no notifications on my phone. Not one friend has called me and been like, hey, you didn't like my Facebook post. You didn't love my Instagram picture. Nobody cares. But we respond to these things like they are Lord of our lives the minute they buzz. What if we just turned them all off? 
What if you gave your phone a bedtime and a wake-up time? So when you put the kids to bed, you could actually focus in on time with your spouse. And what if we didn't pick it up again in the morning until after we'd already spent some time with Jesus first? Spending time reading your Bible, start your day off happier than reading the news headlines? What if we scheduled time to check our email? I don't know about you, I, my email's always up on my computer and I'm, I'm working and all of a sudden I see a one and I'm like, oh, who emailed me? 99% of the time, it's just spam. But that spam distracted my line of thought. It took me out of what I was doing. What would it look like if we said, hey, you know, I'm not checking email today until a half an hour before I leave. And when I check it, I'm gonna go through everything and I'm gonna respond to every message. So then when it's been almost 24 hours, I'll be back to it and I'm still in that socially acceptable time to respond to emails. But it hasn't interrupted my day. What if you eliminate your TV? Comer says in his book, you should kill it. That seemed a little violent to put on the screen. But what if you just eliminated it, right? Now, there are some of us who are like, I can watch TV. It's the way I relax. I love a good movie every once in a while. That's great. But how many of us are like, I'm going to watch one episode of this show. And then you get that like Netflix does it, Hulu does it. You get 10 seconds to decide if you're going to watch another episode. And you're like, oh, no, I want another one and another one and another one. And we look down and our Saturday afternoon's gone. What if we need to just eliminate that from our lives? What if we single task all the time? Anybody else ever burnt dinner while washing laundry at the same time? Because you're like, oh, I can switch it out before that dish is done. And you come back and you're like, oh, that's smoke coming off the skillet. And nobody hurt, nobody smelled that. Dinner's ruined. Walter Brueggemann says, multitasking is the drive to do more than we are to control more than we do, to extend our power and our effectiveness. Such practice yields a divided self with full attention given to nothing. What if we said, I'm just going to do one thing at a time? What if we chose to walk slower? So I had to run some errands yesterday and I decided I was going to try this one. Walking slower at Walmart the Saturday after Thanksgiving is a good way to die. That is what I will tell you. So I literally felt like, and I don't mean any offense if this is you, so please, but I felt like the old grandpa who just has to walk slow. So I kept, con I found, found myself constantly moving to the right, just trying then as you move and somebody else comes up this way and you're like, oh my gosh. And so then I'm walking fast because I'm tired of getting run over and being the annoying person in Walmart. And then I'm like, no, slow down. But how many people do you know who walk fast, who make rash decisions? None of them. I think sometimes the speed of my feet and the speed of my mouth should match, and that gets me in trouble. What would it look like if we were just intentional about walking slower? Schedule times of rest and silence. Cook your own food. I'm not going to lie. We eat an unhealthy amount of fast food and pizza in our house because it's what's quick and can get us back out the door. What would it look like if we were intentional about slowing down? Again, this is not about a legalistic pursuit. It's about learning to live the life God has for us, about making a conscious choice to slow down and enjoy all that we have. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to read a book and forget about it and be like, oh yeah, I read that book, it was great, that guy was, that author was brilliant, but I'm not gonna do that. Or to come in here and listen to somebody speak and be like, oh yeah, they've got their life together, but I don't, so I'm not even gonna try that. So this morning, I wanna close our time by inviting a family up. Now, this is a caution to all of you. They walked up to me after service a couple weeks ago and said, hey, you know what? You're talking about Sabbath? We actually practice it. And I was like, you do? I would love to talk to you on stage in front of everybody. Would you guys do that? And they were like, I guess. So if you would welcome up Kurt and Trish Russell, they're gonna come and talk to us a little bit about their experience with Sabbath. So Kurt, I'm glad you're here today. I've always wanted to invite Kurt Russell on stage with me. It's great. So, uh, so yeah. Thank you, sir. There you go. Welcome, and thanks for being willing to do this. No one's ever going to talk to me after church again now, but that's all right. So uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your family. Good morning. My name is Kurt. Uh, I am the uh, human resources manager for an army brigade of about 2,000 people. Hi, my name is Trish Russell. I'm a combat veteran, and I now get to teach preschool. So I'm with three and four-year-olds all the time. And so which one's more dangerous, combat veteran or teaching preschool? Just I feel like uh, the veteran piece prepared me for the <laughs> Yeah. Nice. And then we have three kids, um, Elowen, Carrie, and Brasher. They're in fifth, fourth, and third grade. Well, before we carry on, thank you so much for your service to our country and for what you've done. So, so tell us a little bit about... <laughs> second service always claps more. They're much more... They're awake. They're it's awake. Amazing. That's what thank happens. You. So, yeah. so uh, tell us about when you started practicing Sabbath, why you started practicing Sabbath, all those kind of things. Uh, so I actually grew up practicing Sabbath. My father, who's in the crowd, is a retired Seventh-day Adventist minister. Um, so we have practiced Sabbath as sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, uh, pretty much every day of my childhood. Um, in the 20s, I kind of stopped with the legal thing and did my own thing, but we kind of came back to it. So uh, Sabbath practicing for me is about as natural as breathing. Okay. And, and what about you? Uh, your whole life too? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> No, so we were up in the UP on a trip when he actually proposed to me, and I said yes, and then somehow I finally was like, hey, what about this whole Sabbath thing? I see the way your mom and dad practice, and he was like, yep, mm-hmm, and I was like, okay. I was very nervous. I uh, had to pause because I was concerned, you know, what if I don't get the butter, and I can't go to the store? Am I not allowed to do that? So I was very nervous to practice uh, Sabbath. So, and how has that grown over the years? So, obviously, you talked a little bit about as a kid in your 20s and then back, but Trish, how's it grown for you as you've kind of embraced this practice or worked on it anyway? So, we have three kids. They are th uh, we had three kids in diapers. I'm a military wife, and two weeks, uh, two weekends a month, he's not with us. He's at drill. So, it's changed a lot. And so the way it started is, you know, we put it on the calendar and we do everything we can to make it happen where we're focused on each other or we're not gardening in the backyard or I'm not picking out some huge household project to do. Um, and that has been really helpful. And it changes from season to season. Some, some weekends we like knock it out of the park and some weekends we uh, just d didn't do Sabbath. So it's been an evolution, but there's been a constant commitment to make it work. Mm -hmm. How's it changed for you? 
so growing up again uh, in a Seventh-day Adventist religion, it's very, very legal. So it's, it's similar to Judaism where they are very keen on Leviticus with all of the laws of Moses. And so growing up, uh, we didn't get to watch Saturday morning cartoons. It was very trying for me. No Transformers? Uh, no, no Transformers, no G.I. Joe. Oh, no G. Joe. Uh, He-Man, that was the one that I truly missed. Uh, we, we got the play-by-play from our classmates in school, though, so that was okay. <laughs> um, but in my 20s, like I said, I kind of branched off a little bit, and I started doing my own thing, and I, I realized that it's not about the laws as much as it is about the community that you have and the communion you have with God. Mm. So um, I had a lot of struggles going through my 20s, uh, but once I figured that out, it was all about communing with God and just being able to rest and relax. That is when it, it really started changing. And then once we got married, like she said, it's, <laughs> it's, it's up and down. Um, we try to observe Sabbath every week if we can. Sometimes we're really, really good at it, and sometimes not so much. So, Yeah, yeah. What's the biggest hurdle? What's been a hurdle that you've had to overcome as you, you wrestle with this practice? Uh, well, like I said, the, the legal stuff. So yeah. um, it's uh, for, Jude, for Jews, um, they observe Shabbat, and Shabbat is they read and and study about the story of creation before they talk about everything else. And they are very, very, uh, during the Sabbath, you can't turn on a light switch. So you better turn it on Friday before sundown because you're not going to be able to see in the house until Saturday night. And then, oh yeah, then you can turn it on. So Friday night might be in silence and darkness. um, (laughs) Sounds like a blast. (laughs) So... um, I will say one thing, though, as far as the legal thing goes, I think it's in Leviticus chapter 7 that it's marshmallows no. on sweet potatoes and not pralines. I've got to throw that out. You have a bad translation, sir. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so, what, what's been your biggest hurdle? Uh, my biggest hurdle has just been because um, it's new to me, and we also really um, value what his family has given us with Sabbath. The Sabbath practice has been a gift, a blessing to make that space for God and family and connection. Um, I just wanted to feel a certain way, or I wanted to look a certain way for my family, and and it doesn't. So I, I struggle with um, finding purpose and value in it that I think it should be instead of just making space for God, making space for our family, making space for connection. And then whatever it looks like is kind of how it looks. Um, but I struggle with the expectations I put on myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you guys call it practice and that you give yourself grace to fail in the midst of that. Um, does it actually make a difference? Do you see a difference? Oh, yes. Um, so, in the weeks that we are not able to observe Sabbath and just rest, uh, our kids, like she said, we have three of them, and they are wired for sound. Um, the weeks following us not being able to practice Sabbath, they, are, they find it hard to concentrate at school. Uh, they find it hard to concentrate at home. I find it hard to concentrate at work. So the week after drill is probably our worst week where I'm just very tired, Mm -hmm. unable to concentrate. When we are able to set aside time and observe Sabbath and talk to God, talk to each other, just hang out and rest, then the week following is awesome. Mm. And then for me in today's time and culture, it helps my emotional stability, to be honest. I'm able to... Um, if we have a fight or, uh, which is probably just us that fight, but if we have a fight Probably or... not. <laughs> probably. I know how many people are attending the marriage series. 
or we have an unexpected bill come in, or I read the news headline, I'm able to have a healthier response. It doesn't mean I, I don't react in ways I wish I didn't, but I'm able to just calm, settle, refocus uh, in healthier ways. So quickly, there's a bunch of people here. Some of them are probably like, well, that's great for you guys. This is crazy. I can't imagine stopping for a day. What encouragement would you offer to somebody who doesn't practice Sabbath and is willing to maybe give it a shot? I encourage you just to put, uh, put it on the calendar is the most important thing. Open up that app and put four hours, two hours, and put Sabbath, um, just that practice, that habit of blocking that time. And be around people you like, do something fun you want to do, and put that phone aside and just get in that habit, and it'll grow because you're going to look forward to it. Um, so the old saying goes, aim small, miss small. Um, while that's kind of more towards uh, shooting rifles, it, it kind of applies here. Um, aim small, miss small. So like she said, put it on the calendar, but only aim for maybe two hours on a Saturday morning or an hour on a Friday night, but aim small first. And the more you get into that practice and build that habit, the easier it's going to become to actually dedicate an entire day just to be with God and your family and get that rest that you need. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys so much for being here, for being willing to come up and talk and, and share your story in front of all these people. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. So as we wrap up, what's it going to look like for you? It's not just about our stories and our struggles. I've shared my struggle with this and my family's going to have some time to talk, but I want to know what it's going to look like for you. So these cards were sitting on your, on your chair as you walked in. And on the back side, it simply says, I will ruthlessly eliminate hurry in my life. Bye. I want to encourage you. We're going to have a couple minutes here as the band gets ready to come out and play. And if you want to just sit and write what you're going to do, here, do that now. If you're like, hey, no, this is something I want to talk about as a family when we go home and see what our family rhythm is going to be like. Do that. But here's what I don't want you to do. Don't take this card and tuck it in your Bible and then forget about it. Once you write something on it, I want to encourage you, put it on the refrigerator. Put it on your mirror in the morning. Tape it to the dashboard of your car so you can see it, so you remember. Because it's real easy to sit here and be like, oh, that was a great five-week series. And in three weeks, we don't remember anything that was talked about. But what's going to be different in our life? Not from a legalistic, not from a, hey, I have to do this. Not because I should do it, but because I want to. Because Jesus has given me space to do it. So how will our lives look different? If you're here and you're like, this has been really hard. I need somebody to talk to, to pray with. We'll have prayer workers on the side of the room. They would love to pray with you. Some of our pastors will be in back and we would love to pray with you if you have any concerns. But right now, would you pray with me and then we can stand and sing as you're ready. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the warning signs that you give us in life that help us see our need to slow down. God, I pray that you would help us be honest with ourselves so we could stop and look inside and see if there are things in our lives that we need to eliminate so we can connect more deeply with you, so we can love our neighbor well, so we can love our family well. God, give us courage to trust to wait, 
Give us courage to not rush all the time like Martha, but to slow down and sit at your feet like Mary. So that, God, we can experience your presence. So that we can experience the joy that you have for us. So that we can see the needs all around us and be better prepared to meet those needs. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.